Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf with the Damned If You Do episode. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. And if you're a new listener, thanks for stopping by. This is the place to be if you're interested in science and speculative fiction and want to meet the writers who create it. Fantasy authors also drop by, and that's the case today, where my guest is not just a wonderfully talented debut author, but also a friend whose work as both a writer and a liver of life I deeply admire. Patricia A. Jackson's book, Forging a Nightmare, immerses the reader in a world of menace, fallen angels and demigods whose history of alliances and resentments stretch to the beginning of time. Jackson puts a fresh spin on biblical characters like Gabriel and Lucifer by turning them into FBI agents, a parish priest, a homeless preacher, and other seemingly ordinary folks who pursue ancient vendettas in modern-day New York City. Patty Jackson is with me via Skype from her home in Pennsylvania. Hello, hello, Patty, and it's, it's great having you on the podcast as a guest. Hello, Rob, and thank you so much. That was a great intro. How are you tonight? Uh, as a teacher <laughs> in post-pandemic, in pandemic, we're still a little tired, just a little. And this has been a rough week, <laughs> but we're hanging on. All right. Well, let's dive in and talk about something that's going to give you a lot of energy, I think, which is talking about your debut novel. And I thought maybe we could start with your main character, Michael Childs. Like all the characters in Forging a Nightmare, I have to say he's not what I expected. In his case, he's an FBI agent, but when we first meet him in the opening scene, he's not dressed in a suit or casual office wear or even an FBI windbreaker like I'd expect a run-of-the-mill G-man to be wearing. He's on his way to a murder scene investigation in medieval jousting gear. So who is Michael Childs? I think every character is an extension of the author who created them. And um, I am Michael Childs. I would go to horse shows and I would be in my boots and my breeches and my show jacket and I would go to the mall or I would go to the bank or I would go to the jewelry store dressed in my duds, sometimes with odor of horse upon me. Um, People would just kind of look around. It wasn't just because you were dressed in horse gear. You were a black girl dressed in horse gear, and they had never seen that before. And Michael Childs is a black FBI agent who enjoys, for sport, doing Renaissance fairs and jousting? Yes, he loves jousting. I love the Renaissance fair. We have the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair here in Mount Hope, close by, and it's just a wonderful place to go on the weekend. And I I just enjoy it. I love the jousting, of course, and the nights. And so Michael is an FBI agent, but when we meet him, he's beginning an investigation into a series of grisly murders. And the victims all have one thing in common as far as the 
ordinary human earthbound investigators know, they observe that they all were born with six fingers and toes. But then we find out from some non-human, divinely connected characters a little bit more about, about these victims. So can you talk about what ties all these victims together and, you know, who are they and who's targeting them? These victims are called Nephilim, and they are the descendants of angels who transgressed in the creation where they fell in love with human men and women and had children against the edicts of God. That was very naughty of them to do. So many of them have very diluted blood, and they may be born with 12 fingers and 12 toes. As we know, that does happen. Um, And I wanted to explain that mythology of what had happened. And they have been targeted by a crew of angels called the Grigori. And the Grigori were charged with watching the creation and watching over what was happening to make sure that humankind was safe. But some of them fell in love or fell in lust with humans and um, had these children. And some of the children did not turn out well. Some of them were monsters. Some of them were cannibals, a.k.a. the Cyclops or perhaps the Minotaur. Uh, And that's how I pulled in some Greek mythology into the biblical lore. And some of these children were born with saints' fingers and toes and were just normal, but had a knack for something, a knack for tactical thinking or for numbers or for dealing with children. As you've suggested there, you have kind of put your own spin on things. You've taken some lore, some biblical lore. You've maybe at times mixed it with mythology. And of course, that's what authors are known to do. I think that adds to that feeling of never knowing what to expect. For instance, you know, I am no expert on the Bible, not even close. But what I've heard about the four horsemen of the apocalypse is that they're scary. And as the name suggests, they appear really when the world is ending. And you introduce us to four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they have their home bases in hell, and that's pretty scary. Uh, But they're also pretty funny, and they're charming, and they want to help the the Nephilim. So in essence, they're showing off a side that's kind of heroic. So I wanted to talk to you about your re-envisioning of these biblical myths and stories. You know, what's, what's going on here? Like, what were you doing, and what are you telling us about your relationship to religion? My religion or my relationship to religion is tattered, I would say. There's faith and there's religion, and I'm a faithful person. I believe in something greater than myself. I am a spiritual person. I see religion as a control caller, so I am not a religious person, and I guess I wanted to break some things, so I did. And the four horsemen have to be cool because, well, they have horses, And of course, that is my favorite animal. Um, So I'd be like, well, what do you feed your nightmare? You know, because my nightmare, she's a little chubby and I need to get her weight down. So what do you feed yours? And is your pasture time six hours or do you just keep them out three hours? Do they paddock alone or can they go out in a pack? So um, if I were going to talk to them, it would be all about their horses. So I had to create this mythology around the horsemen and the characters just simply evolved. They did start off somewhat sinister And the first one that Michael Childs meets is death. And in the writing of the story, the character became the mentor to Michael to help him understand his angelic nature. And then the next one that I thought of was pestilence. And I made that particular angel female, 
because we always see them as male. And she was feisty, and I don't want to call her promiscuous, but she's flirty and she's fun. Uh, and then we had um, War, who is a warrior. He is a Japanese samurai type warrior. And these were the angels who have come down into the offices of the four horsemen. The only original angel is Semael, the angel of death. The four horsemen were actually created from the core of angels that were supposed to be watching Eden. And oops, Lucifer got in, tempted Adam and Eve, God got angry. And the punishment of those angels who were the caretakers were to become the afflictions that would follow mankind for all of time, death, famine, war, and pestilence. As I said, I'm no scholar of the Bible. So what you just related, is that your storytelling or is that an accepted story about the origin of the Four Horsemen? I have never read it before. Uh, I've never seen it before. Okay. So I won't say that someone hasn't done it, but in my little overactive imagination, that was all me. Okay, right. That's what. That's all I wanted to know. Yes, maybe it's by some coincidence someone is out there, and when you make a gazillion dollars on your book, they will come and sue you and say you stole their idea. <laughs> so let's talk about what a nightmare is. Now, when I, when I first heard the title of your book, Without knowing the story, I thought, oh, forging a nightmare. Someone had a really bad dream. They had, they forged a bad dream. But it's not that. It's a mare, a mare of the night, I suppose. Maybe that's the way <laughs> to think of it. And there's a character named Anna Barains, and she's kind of a star of the book as well, like Michael Childs. And she is a former Marine sniper, and she's also a nightmare. So could you talk a little bit more just about the idea of a, of a nightmare as opposed to just a regular horse? And, and let's talk a little about Annaba too. Like, what's the deal with her? Cool. Um, as a kid coming up, I was in love with Piers Anthony. And he wrote a book called Nightmare. And I loved it. And I remember trying to go back and read it with some horse experience. And I'm just like, no, this doesn't work for me. I was also, an, and still am, an avid Dungeons and Dragons player. And whenever you say a nightmare to a Dungeons and Dragons player, oh yeah, stay away. So as a horseback rider coming up, I've always giggled that I've had nightmares in my life because I've had some horses that were horrible and would just sooner stomp you in the face, you know, and run away. And then some horses that will lick you to death because they're just big giant dogs. And I have, I just grew up wanting my horse to be with me to comfort me because that's who my confessor was. That's who I told my secrets to my horse. And I wanted to have a nightmare or a war horse of some sort, do that for a character, solace them in their moments when things got really, really tough. That's not necessarily Annaba reigns. Annaba is my spirit animal when I'm angry. <laughs> I love her because she says what she means and she means what she says, says and does not care if she hurts your feelings. She does not like Michael when she first meets him. And there's a reason for that. She has escaped from hell and she is running for her life. She does not want to be in any kind of servitude to anyone. Nightmares are created from condemned souls that are tortured beyond torture. They are forced to relive a sin over and over and over again until it breaks them. And the breaking causes a transformation where they rise into these feral 
dangerous animals that are used for hunting souls, hunting angels, and warfare with other angels. And what better person will be suited to that than a Marine Corps sniper? But at the same time, Annabelle wants the people in her life to be safe. And she doesn't know how to have a soft hand. And there are days when I don't know how to have a soft hand. <laughs> Just have to admit it as a teacher. And she, she was so difficult in the writing of the story that the novel almost didn't get written because she wanted it to be her story. And it wasn't her story to tell. How do you work that out? Like, she wants it to be her story. Do you sit her down and talk to her? I mean, what do you do? You, you write scenes and not use them? Uh, we had to go to the playground because writing for me is a playground and we had to go to the playground and we had to have a discussion about Michael and how Michael needed a friend and someone to protect him so that he could tell his story. And, um, the first iteration of the novel was a little tough because she was stronger than I thought she needed to be. And Michael wasn't as tough as he needed to be. But as the edits came, you know, the second, third, fourth edit, both characters sort of came together. And I'm a pantser. I am an incorruptible pantser, incorrigible, I should say, I guess. Um, so by the so seat of your pants, in other words. By right. the seat of your pants. I really don't know what's going to happen next. They bonded. They bonded in a way that a horseman bonds with their horse. And she lightened up. And he stepped up. Um, so essentially, she opened a door and he stepped to it and walked through it. And they became stronger and better together. You've referenced your experience growing up as an equestrian and as a black equestrian. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what that taught you, you know, being with horses, being with animals, riding. I mean, you do jumping, right? I mean, you're not just trotting on trails. I mean, the only time I've ever been on a horse is like going on a little you know, trail or something on a vacation, but you're doing the, the, the heavy duty stuff. So I, I imagine that sort of builds character and makes you kind of fearless and probably a million other things. And then being black in an environment that I think is probably at least traditionally largely white, which maybe is the same as being in, you know, different parts of America as well. So it's sort of a, an, an example of that. But I just wonder if you could just talk about how that shaped not just the story, but you as a person. Horses will humble you. <laughs> they don't judge you like people do, which is nice. And I'll get into that in a moment. But they will humble you. Uh, there's no forcing them to do anything. They will do it out of fear or they will do it out of love because that's what they want. They want something from you. They want your praise. And, and some horses learn a job. They, they know to take care of you. Uh, my nightmare, Maya, um, is easily one to take care of you. You really don't know what you're doing, human. So I'm going to take care of this for you. And I love her for that. Then I have a horse named Indy who, this is going too slow. My mom, we need to go a lot faster. And no, Indy, please don't go faster. No, 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 mom. It would be faster, faster. So we don't ride him quite as often. But being probably the only black kid on the showgrounds in a time when a lot of blacks did not ride. It was lonely because you were seen, you were an anomaly and, and people would stare. And if you were good and I was, people would stare for the most part. I can say there was great kindness. Nothing was said with an earshot. I had judges come and speak to me, give me tips and that sort of thing. 
but it's, it's a lonely world, but I've had some menacing situations where a gal came to take pictures of the horses who were stabled. I was sitting beneath the tent and I invited her to come into the barn, take pictures of the horses and then invited her down to have a Coke. And then she says to me, how long have you worked for these people? No, 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 I don't work for them. They work for me. I'm a rider. I'm a competitor. I went to go fox hunting one time and um, the lady said to me, do you ride? And I wanted to say to her, no, I'm here to commit suicide by horse. (laughs) Uh, Just because you see a black face, you know, I can ride better than you. My horse is better than what you've got. But you don't want to get into that with people because what I have and what's better doesn't matter to me. But don't look at the color of my skin and judge me unfit. It was quite rude. That was a fox hunting crew here in Pennsylvania. Rude. Mm. I'm sure the fox agreed, too, that everything's rude. <laughs> What's nice about the States is it's fox chasing. You, you rarely see a fox anymore. It's really about people get down on horseback and who comes back with their horse intact. They are big animals. Yes, they are. I mean, they. it seems natural to imagine one as a, as fierce as Annaba is when she's in the nightmare form because they are so powerful in their legs. I mean, you have her kicking and fighting, not to mention breathing brimstone, you know, and setting things on fire, but just the kicking, you know? I mean, a horse that doesn't have divine powers is dangerous. One of the horses that is based on the nightmare was a horse named Bump, and she was a predator. If you went out into the pasture to get her you took a bucket of feed as an offering and a whip because she would charge you and she would charge you with her teeth she would come after you and we didn't send kids for her and she was a terror so she was sort of an inspiration for Annaba in some ways but there are other horses like my horse Indy he has no time to be bothered with people and that can be Annaba sometimes Indy's like what are we doing let's get it done fast because he likes to go fast. He's a thoroughbred and that's Annaba. So she's a mixture of a lot of horses that I've met in my life. I know you've been writing stories since you were eight years old, but you write in an essay on your website that the idea of making your characters black wasn't something that actually came naturally. And I wanted to hear, if you don't mind, just talking about that evolution, you know, when you decided and realized, in fact, it almost sounded like it wasn't even conscious. You weren't really thinking about, you just assumed you just naturally created white characters. Because that's the world I lived in. To be beautiful, you had to have blonde hair and blue eyes and fair skin. That was what the world told me was beautiful in the Barbies and baby dolls and television. And it wasn't until I started writing some Star Wars fiction in the late 1990s, early 2000s, that I started to experiment a little bit. I created a world called Socorro, and that's where all the black people were in Star Wars, in my mind. And people would say, well, there's no Africa in Star Wars, so there are no black people. There's so many races. And that was just translation for you don't matter. You don't need to be here. So I was experimenting with these characters who had dark skin. And that's all I would touch on because my father made it very clear to me, do not call attention to yourself because that's not always safe. Don't do that. So in writing Forging a Nightmare, it was an exorcism to find my blackness, to find who I was and to appreciate and to love it. And it was Annaba because Annaba was black and she had dreadlocks and she was beautiful. She was gorgeous and she was dangerous. 
Michael was white. Originally, when I wrote the novel, and he stayed that way for about two or three edits through the novel. And something just clicked with me one day that he should be black and beautiful like her and that it was okay to do that. And I think part of it was Michael's mother was black, but his father, the archangel Mikael, was white because angels are white. Who said that? Why is that allowed? No, angels can be any kind of diversity that we have here on earth. You know what I mean? And I was like, okay, Michael's going to be black and his father's going to be black. Archangel Mikael was going to be black. And I was going to dare somebody to change my mind. I do want to talk about your work a little bit as a teacher and some of the experiences you've been having recently, because you're you've actually been on national news for for something in particular. But before I do that, I did want to pause a little bit and just talk about what kind of research you did. There's a language called Enochian that's in the book, and there's a young man who uh, speaks Tuareg, if I said that correctly. So I wonder if you could just give a little insight in where you decided to delve a little deeper into into some of these subjects. I love linguistics, but I am just not smart enough for it. I probably should have studied a little bit. I know a little bit enough to be dangerous. And I love languages. I created the Sokoan language for my Star Wars stories. So coming to Enochian was very easy. It was just a lot of research and finding what certain words were, looking for translators. And then there were some words that I just could not find. So... I made them up and I'm very happy doing that, especially when you come to certain places and you want the certain place to have a certain ring or sound to it. So I had a lot of fun with that. Uh, And I teach that in my creative writing classes that, you know, if you want that to mean heart, then you go look up six words, your six favorite languages, and you look up the word heart and then you mix and match those words to come up with something of your own. And that's pretty much what I did for Enochian mixing in some of the real words and some of the new words. Tuareg are the people who live in northern Mali, um, northern Africa, but there are black Tuareg. Um, The Tuareg people did believe in slavery at one point, and um, they enslaved black people. And their history is very similar to what happened in this country. There was intermarriage, there was intermingling and that sort of thing. So you do have some darker skinned Tuareg people Um, And that's who I was really going for when I created Ziri for the book to be uh, sort of a companion to Annaba. And that language was that was tough because that is very difficult to find any kind of information or literature on. And when we were doing the audio book, I got terrified because I couldn't speak the language. And I was lucky enough to find a professor who did speak the language, who made recordings for me. And it's a fascinating language. I would, that's a language I would love to learn. I would love to learn it because it's absolutely beautiful. And you could speak to the professor, the one person you know who knows the language. <laughs> the person I know, yes. So let's talk a little bit about what you've been going through. And I, I was thinking of it in the context of how you as a Black writer and more Black writers have been seeing more book deals and entering the publishing industry, which has been criticized for being predominantly hugely white. And the, the pipeline of training and interns and all that is it's starting to open up. You know, it's probably going to take a while to get anyway. There seems to have been some progress, but there's still battles going on and 
those kind of battles are something you're intimately and probably frustratingly familiar with from your day job as a high school language arts teacher. And in particular, your school district has has actually or went through an exercise where they were banning books. And those books were by black authors or they featured black characters. And some of your students and you yourself have been featured in the national news, you know, fighting back. And I thought, gosh, you know, if that went forward, and I think they've pulled back a little bit, but you could talk a little bit about what's actually going on. Your book would probably be on a banned list, you know, because black author, black characters. So could you just bring us up to date on what's going on and what what it's like for you? I mean, here you are with your debut novel, and I don't know, it's just really shitty that something like that is going on. Rob, I'm learning another painful lesson that diversity and representation are not the same thing. Diversity is adding colors to the rainbow to appease people. And representation is really seeing that person for who they are. This colorblindness is a bad thing. I'm a black woman and I need you to see me as a black woman and to understand where I'm coming from, you know, as far as my experiences and to deny that is racism. And you will not convince me otherwise. And we're talking about this white shaming, white guilt for telling history the way it went down. You can't suppress history. You can't bury history because what you're doing is you're suppressing or you're burying the truth. And if it makes you uncomfortable, it's supposed to, because we're to teach the children, this should never happen again. If you sugarcoat it, if you bury it, if you put it behind the bush under the rug, it's destined to happen again. So we had these beautiful books by and about BIPOC people as well as LGBTQ people that were being buried because they made a few white people upset. And and there are some books in there that made me bristle as well. But with a good teacher and with a good discussion, they could be good resources in the classroom. But you have this force of people that want to suppress history because they're ashamed of what happened and they don't want to talk about these things and accusing my kids and myself of showing a one-sided history. Well, isn't that what you've given us for the last 200 years? A a one-sided history? And you're okay with that. So these kids in the Panther Anti-Racist Union stepped up. They went to a teacher. It was not me. They went to another teacher and said, what are you going to do about it? And he turned that back on them. Ben Hodge is his name. He said, what are you going to do about it? And they started organizing protests. They made signs. Um, They did walk-in protests. And Ben Hodge is a dear friend of mine. And I wanted to make sure he was protected. And I'm very active in my union. I'm a union rep. And I am union strong. I believe in the union. Can't even say that enough or strong enough. And I was hell-bent, like Annaba, that nothing was coming for him. So he's sort of Michael Childs, and I'm Annaba in that respect, and for the children as well. And their quiet voices, their quiet protests just brought all this media attention to our school and embarrassment to our school board for what they had done, because it wasn't just banning these books like I am Rosa Parks, I am enough, not quite Snow White, Pink is for Boys, uh, the greatest achievement of 50 LGBTQ figures. It wasn't just the banning of those particular books. It was also the banning of resources that were going to be used in 
curriculums in the school and not just the banning of these things, the banning for a year, a year has gone by. They'd already effectively taken them off the shelves for a year. They'll tell you no, that they weren't taken off the shelves. And what happened was um, the ban came in November 2020, but nothing was officially sent to teachers until August 11th of 2021. And that's when the kids got involved. And that's when the news media also got involved and the article came out. And in fear, you had some people removing these books from classroom libraries or actually school libraries, which was very sad. Now, our acting superintendent came in and said, no, 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 put those things back. They need to go back. But when they call it a freeze, because it's not a book ban, it's a freeze. Like that's supposed to be a difference. But the word they used was wonderful because it had a chilling effect on the teachers. Well, that's on the, the ban. So I'm allowed to use it if I've used it before, but it's on the banned list. Maybe I shouldn't be using it. That's the chilling effect that it had. Wow. So what do you think your kids have learned from this experience, the ones in who are doing, doing the protest and have been becoming articulate spokespeople for freedom of expression and fighting censorship. The greatest joy of a teacher is to watch kids grow. And I have watched these young ladies become something incredible. And the lessons learned are I am important, that I have a voice, even though I'm 16, 17, or 18 years old, that what I say matters, that my voice can be uplifted for five other people who cannot have a voice and that I must carry that message. I must control the narrative. I'm not going to let someone taint the message. I'm going to keep with one message and focus that and tell the world. And that, and that is really what they, they have done. They had the opportunity to meet Dr. Bernice King, which was amazing. And they went to a webinar at the King Center via Zoom, obviously. But a lot of what they were doing already is what Dr. King's group was telling them to do. And they were like, well, we're doing that already. So all they were doing was refining that and, and taking that to the next level. And we've got some wonderful children that are going to come out into the world. They are, they are magic. That's beautiful. Well, I thought maybe we could end with maybe, you know, you're not just a writer, but you also teach writing to these young minds. And I, I wondered what advice you give or lesson, you know, what do you share with them to inspire them or to help them find their own original voices? I believe in the inner eight-year-old. And a lot of people look at me like I am crazy when I say such a thing. Writing for me is a playground. The inner critic is not allowed. We criticize our kids so much. There are so many rules, so many boundaries. You can't run. You have to stay within these lines. And children can't write. We kill their creativity in school, um, but they don't have any. And phones and technology and computers kill it even more that they don't even know how to have a conversation in most places. So I teach them to find their inner eight-year-old and pull that child out of timeout <laughs> and to go on the playground and have an adventure, daydream. You have your headphones on and you're listening to music. What are you doing? Well, I'm listening to the words, miss. Can you daydream? Can you put a scene and make that the soundtrack to the music? And you think you've told them some awesome secret. And it's not really an awesome secret. It's just be free and allow yourself to have fun. 
because that first draft, I call it unicorn vomit <laughs> because that's all it's supposed to be. It is not supposed to make sense to anyone but you because it's the inner eight-year-old telling the story to themselves. So go do that. We'll talk about editing. That's the next show, Rob. <laughs> we'll talk about editing. But just whether you use a fandom that you're comfortable in, Harry Potter, whatever it might be, until you're comfortable to tell your original story, get your inner eight-year-old, follow the white rabbit, have a good time on the playground, and just write your story. And don't worry about grammar or sentences. If you have a plot hole, just tell your story and have fun. Have fun. Daydream. We don't daydream enough. Okay, so now I wish I could go back and rename the episode the Unicorn Vomit episode. (laughs) Thank you so much. I encourage everyone to go out and buy Forging a Nightmare. Thank you so much for having me. I've been talking to Patricia A. Jackson, whose debut novel, Forging a Nightmare, came out from Angry Robot in November. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the podcast if you aren't already a subscriber, and it would be lovely and much appreciated if you left five stars for the show on whatever podcast app you use. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf, and I edit the show. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is the co-editor. Happy holidays, be well, and don't forget that books make lovely holiday gifts.